Does thrifting still pay? More about this and other stories on This Week in Retro. High resolution color graphics. This land of high technology. The revolution in technology that made the information age possible. Those kids are not afraid of computers. A wild gunman has been found. A new Amstrad quarterly. A TIE Fighter revival. And thrift stores cash in on retro games. All this in our community question of the week on This Week in Retro. Up to date news for out of date tech. And John, before we begin, uh, I have to say we've had a we've had a complaint this morning, and I know the complaints department here takes things very seriously. Mm. I had a complaint on Twitter that I hadn't ironed my shirt when a picture went out this morning. Just want to say to the fashion <laughs> police, linen oh my shirt. Gosh. It's a linen shirt. I don't need to iron it. This is the fashion. Okay. <laughs> that's right. That's right. It's that loose, comfortable, casual look that's so prevalent these days. Exactly, and it's really hot at the moment. So stand down, fashion police. Now, into our first story. If I were to ask you to think of a light gun-based arcade game set in the Wild West, I'm sure most of you would immediately think of... John, what what are you thinking of when I say that? No, Mad Dog. Mad Dog McRae, for sure. Mad Dog McRae, all day long. Uh, The FMV game that was set in the West with that really annoying Undertaker and all the cheesy acting that went on. But... There is a much older and really interesting game from way back in the 70s that did this long before Mad Dog. That game was called Wild Gunman. It was in arcades back in 1974. And this is not to be confused with the NES game of the same name, which was part of the NES Zapper Pack. Uh, that game was, of course, made up of sprites. We didn't have FMV on our, on our Nintendos back then. Uh, but this original game in 74, it was an interactive movie in the style of Mad Dog, and it did so by utilising 16mm film to deliver the footage instead of laser discs. John, you must have had the Zapper Pack back then. I know you were a huge Nintendo fanboy, did you? Did you have that? I've got one right here, Neil. I always oh, keep it with me, prepped. just in case. It still works, it's great. <laughs> Excellent. Yeah, they're very hardy, aren't they? They just they just carry on working, those old yeah. light guns. Light guns, um, are, light guns, they will be with us until the end of time because it's essentially you know a piece of plastic that reflects light, so... And have you heard of this particular FMV game before? Yeah, there is a series of books uh, by an author named Jeremy Parrish called NES Works. And uh, it, they profile every uh, NES release chronologically. And I read about the FMV Wild Gunman game in there because there's always a big history uh, you know, section about every game. It's funny, you forget about how big those original EM arcade games were compared to the traditional CRT-based uh, games that came to the arcades just a few years later. I mean, these things look like they take up about half a room. It's like the size of a skee-ball machine for each and every game. Yeah, EM being electromechanical games, right. by the way. Um, a, a, a cup of tea has just magically appeared from out of shop for me. You know you're doing something right when tea gets delivered to you, John. You're, you're living the life, <laughs> Neil, I'm telling you. <laughs> Now, in this game, there were four scenarios or movies that you could select from. And then using a light gun, the movie would play and you'd have to shoot the bad guys at the right time or you'd you'd die. Yeah, and this was 1974, so we're talking about 46 years ago, right? Yeah, yeah, a long time ago. And it sounds really impressive, doesn't it? Yeah. Uh, And I have to say, I never saw this game in the wild. But just like Mad Dog and also those Laserdisc games like Dragon's Lair, if you scratch beneath the surface, it, it's, it is pretty simple technology game-wise. You know, we had Pong machines in the 70s in our homes, and many of those games did come with light guns and a simple game of shoot the target. 
Um, some of those Pong games came with pistols. Some of them came with like folding stocks and shotguns. We had all oh, kinds yeah. of the, guns. Oh uh, yeah, the came Odyssey with those Pong One, games. which was you know widely considered to be the first console, it came with a full-on uh, light gun that looked like a, a full-size rifle. So these yeah. these uh, these shooting gallery games have been with us since the beginning. Yeah, since since the very beginning in our homes, and it was just a square bouncing around the screen, and I, I assume that's how this tech would have worked: shoot the square in the right part of the screen, but with video overlaid. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was classed, as we said, as an electromechanical game, so it might have achieved that through more analog methods. I'm not quite sure how it worked underneath. I'd be interested to know, but I'm assuming it's. it's as uh, yeah, I as think that. that the way that it worked is, uh, you know, you've got characters and their lights flash in the same way that a, a a square might flash on the screen when you play Duck Hunt or whatever, and then the sensor in the light gun picks that up. So yes, it's that particular technology has not changed. Well, it changed when we stopped using CRTs, but uh, all through the 8-bit era and the 16-bit era when we had our our menacers and our zappers, all of that technology was basically the same. I think. Hmm. But this wouldn't have been a CRT, would it? From 16 millimeter film, this would have been well, a projector. Oh, you're right. Good point, Neil. Mm. I don't know. It's it, maybe it was just magic. They, they figured it, it out. Ma- back then. We'll just say that it's just magic. <laughs> just magic. I knew. I know part of it involved the eyes flashing of the cowboys. Mm-hmm. So if you freeze frame it at certain parts of this movie, the cowboys' eyes have great big lasers flashing out of them. So that's right. part of the process <laughs> maybe someone can help us on on reddit and tell us how it works but uh the game came on eight individual reels of 16 millimeter film uh, as i said you had to shoot the cowboys when their eyes flashed uh, which was an indicator of when you had to shoot we're not sure if it, if it helped with the precision or not but their eyes did flash and if you didn't shoot them you dropped down dead um and it was game over for you and those 16 millimeter films well that's what really makes it impossible to emulate in the modern day because nobody has them anymore this would have been an expensive arcade to purchase. It would have been difficult to maintain, probably very expensive to play compared to other machines. So there wouldn't have been huge numbers of them out in the wild, and those that were out will have perished. Until now, Neil. You're, you're going to say it. Please say it. <laughs> <laughs> of course. Until now, John. Because Kate Willert, that's Kate at Kate Willert on, on Twitter, um, she shared that two of those reels have been discovered by a chap called Ben and they're in the process of being digitized and those two reels make up the entirety of scenario D so we don't have the whole game but in theory we can play through one complete scenario at least and I say emulate this being electromechanical it's perhaps not really possible to create an exact experience in software alone but there's no reason why we can't simulate the experience by digitizing the footage in in much the same way um, we do a lot of those other electromechanical games there are ways and means of experiencing the game so I guess that leads us on to another one of our appeals, which is if you have or if you know anyone who might have old electromechanical arcades laying around, maybe some cans of old 16 millimeter film with Nintendo stamped on them. We really are edging towards Last Chance Saloon to find and to digitize them before they deteriorate. And it would be fantastic if we could find those other three scenarios for this Wild Gunman game. I'd love to play the whole thing. But Scenario D, in its first instance, I hope we get that online soon and we can get to play that. It it looks like a lot of fun. And um, Mad Dog needs a run for his money. Well, the the, the competition, it's a low bar Mad Dog set. So (laughs) I think anything would be (laughs) improved. Thank you to Moby68W for sharing that story with us. Um, and uh, the link to the Nintendo Life article, which it references, can be found in the show notes, as well as all the other links to stories we discussed today. Neil, 
I've always been a huge fan of magazines. Uh, when I was a kid, especially during the summer holidays like we're on right now, I would wait with bated breath for the mailman to arrive each day in the hopes that he would deliver an issue of Boy's Life, the official magazine of the Boy Scouts back in the day, or Nintendo Boys. Power. <laughs> were, were you more of a magazine subscriber, or were you a purveyor of the newsstand, Neil? Um, a bit of both. I was always racing to the shop on my bike, John. And sometimes I sometimes I might get a magazine subscription for maybe six months or 12 months if I asked for a birthday. But, you know, I, w I was a kid. I didn't have a bank account or a debit card that I could set up subscriptions with. Mm -hmm. So I had to ask for them in those early years. Um, so, yeah, I might get a subscription if I was lucky. But even if I did, I would always race down to the news agents three, maybe four times a month to see if a new magazine had come out, what cover disc was on it because cover discs were so huge as part of the the choices you made over here. Um, not so much in the US, no. I think, but it was all about the cover discs here. Uh, when I was very, very young, it was Amstrad Action with a cover tape. And then when I got an Amiga, it was Amiga and Atari ST uh, format because they were combined as one magazine for about 11 or 13 issues. And then when they became magazines in their own right, I was buying magazines and I bought Amiga format from issue one. Um, and I was loyal to that magazine ever since. Uh, it came with New Zealand Story, uh, a playable demo of the first or first couple of levels, which was a fantastic game. Really lovely, glossy magazine, high quality. It felt like you were part of something to be there from the beginning with your new machine and your new magazine dedicated just to it. I loved it. But Amiga Format could never sustain me for the full month. So I would go back to the newsagent and I'd get the one or I'd get zero magazine or I'd get whatever else I could get my hands on just to get demos uh, and to read more reviews and just to get my fix. So one was never enough, John. Yeah, well, I, I can see why. The whole addition of the cover tape or the cover disc scene uh, gave you an incentive because you were not just buying another thing to read, you were buying more games to play. That's that's really cool, and it's something that obviously with uh, being in the console world would be more difficult to do. Um, but I know that when the PlayStation came out, that was a big draw for the official PlayStation magazine was getting that's that, that yeah. demo disc and stuff like that. But what it also did for you, John, is uh, uh, it gave you a stack of floppy disks that you could put new labels over and reuse oh. once you were done with those. Oh, yes. <laughs> so that was quite good, too. That's true. That's true. Now, in, in my little town, we didn't really have newsstands. Uh, you could get magazines at the local pharmacy or the grocery store uh, and, of course, the bookstore at the mall. But I always remember uh, balking at the cover price of single issues uh, versus just signing up a year at a time because a year subscription to almost anything seems like it was like 20 bucks. And um, and so whenever I would get birthday or Christmas money, uh, I'd always you know get a get a subscription to my favorite magazine. Um, I do remember getting my very first issue of Electronic Gaming Monthly (EGM) at our local supermarket. Uh, it was 1994, April 1994. I looked this up because I couldn't remember, uh, and it had Beavis and Butthead on the cover. Neil, how can you resist the lure <laughs> of Beavis and Butthead? Uh, plus, it had a story about uh, Rocco's modern life. So you know the. <laughs> The culture culture was uh, was high at, at EGM back then. I remember being floored uh, at the number of pages in EGM. It was like it was like a phone book. It wasn't like a magazine. Uh, and there was a staggering number of games that were reviewed. I think there were over a hundred games reviewed in just that one issue. So buying that magazine was the first clue that there was a world outside of Nintendo that I probably should be a part of. 
Wow, a hundred reviews in a magazine. I mean, did they come with were they quality reviews or was this just throwing quantity? <laughs> you know, it's they the, what they do is they take a page, you know, it would be a single page and they'd have four or five people review the same game, you know, all in a column. And uh and they, they counted each one of those as a review, I guess. So they, they kinda cheesed the numbers a little bit, but it was still a massive amount of games. Because remember in ninety four you had, you know, not only did you have all of the, the main consoles, but you had all these new things like the Jaguar and the 3do and all these things so it was like um i guess that was probably the peak i would say i mean i i've never really looked this up but i would say that 94 might have been the time when there were the most consoles out at one time in history yeah that's a good point yeah whether they failed or not they were all there uh (laughs) because it was right at the dawn of the cd era so everybody was sort of casting their line out into that pool that's an interesting question in which year did we have the most choice of consoles whether they were good or not uh yeah i need to look more into that what i've got here is a box with united states postal service on it so you know where it's come from and it is a whole stack and i know you're a fan of these of nintendo power magazine oh yes really minty fresh ones a huge box full of them and um I don't remember seeing Nintendo Power so much in in the UK, um, but when I got them, I was struck with just how small they are. Now, um, it wasn't until I got chatting to a friend who works in a magazine publishers here in the UK that he explained that this is the standard size of magazine format in the US. Mm-hmm. Um, I need to grab a UK magazine for comparison. Let's have another edit, Duncan. <laughs> <laughs> Here's Amiga Format magazine. Here's your Nintendo Power. So that's the standard UK magazine format size. Yeah, I noticed that uh, when I started buying import magazines, which, you know, when Retro Gamer was first released and uh, the Edge and things like that. And I thought, boy, you guys were getting a lot more content. So is that true, Neil? Did you get 25% more content with your 25% larger magazine size? No, absolutely not. So speaking to this friend uh, who works at a publisher, he said basically they would just take Amiga format or retro gamer or whatever magazine it is run a script and it would just shrink it down it wouldn't change the layout or anything like that it would just shrink it down to the u.s size but i think there's also something to be said for the quality of print like the uk magazines seem to be a bit glossier Mm -hmm. a bit thicker pages a bit higher quality paper um and i don't think i'm imagining that is absolutely the truth that is the first thing that anybody that uh, gets involved with the import magazine scene notices is that, and I don't know if it's just because there's a lot more competition in the UK market in terms of magazines, uh, because it seems like you guys always had a, a zillion magazines devoted to every conceivable format. But uh, yeah, you guys, the, the the attention paid to the actual quality of the paper, the binding, etc., uh, is is much higher in the UK for sure. Hmm. Well, there you go, John. You may have a big country, but you have little magazines. <laughs> there it is. England <laughs> compensating again, Neil. Well, uh, the the love gamers have for magazines hasn't gone away with the invention of nonstop gaming news and reviews on the internet. In fact, magazine publishing on the whole has gone through something of a renaissance here lately in many hobbies. Uh, why do you think people still love magazines in the internet era, Neil? Um, you mean new magazines? New magazines, out. yeah. New magazines. I think there's lots of reasons, um, ranging from nostalgia to, to convenience uh, for however it is that people want to consume that magazine, all the way to showing off, wanting to put that magazine on their coffee table so that when people visit, they say, oh, 
Ah, John, I see you like Jazz and Caravan Monthly. You must be a man of taste. Um, I think there's lots of reasons for people doing it. Uh, I subscribe to a few. I personally do it just because I like to be able to turn off all the gadgets, sit in a comfy chair, make a coffee and enjoy reading without distraction. That's my main reason for buying magazines. Um, I could find a way around it. I could get a Kindle or something like that, but uh, I don't know. That works for me and also the tactile nature of flicking through a magazine. I just like it, the smell of the ink. Um, Yeah, that's my reasoning. Yeah, I'm exactly the same way. It's all about the tactile experience and being able to flip through the pages. So, you know, if you're reading a story and and you feel like you've gotten the gist of what's going on, you just turn the page and you've got something new. Uh, It's I I like the ability to be able to navigate throughout the whole issue at my leisure, I guess. Um, And uh, magazines also appeal to the collector impulse in me. Uh, Most of the current magazines I subscribe to. Uh, I display proudly on myself as a record of my reading accomplishments. And, you know, when people yeah, come to my house, yeah. they're awed that I've been able to read so many magazines about so many old computers. They love it. Uh, <laughs> it's like when you see politicians on the TV and they sit in front of their bookcase. Exactly. Like, Look at my collection of books. I'm so powerful and knowledgeable. That's right. You know, they haven't read any of them. <laughs> well, subreddit user Dave Velociraptor has alerted us that a new magazine is coming out soon. And my guess is that you're going to be whipping out the credit card before this story is over neil uh fusion retro books uh they're the publishers of crash zap 64 and a plethora of retro gaming books have just announced a new quarterly publication and get this neil it's all about your favorite computer the veritable amstrad cpc Oh, yes, the Amstrad. I'm not surprised it's Velociraptor Dave who submitted this story because I know he's a huge fan of the CPC. So uh, hello, Dave, if you're listening or watching. And tell us more about it, please, John. Well, it's called Amtix. And I guess this is following the fusion tradition of naming their magazines in honor of the platform-specific magazines of the past. Uh, And it aims to be a quarterly publication that's published in A5 format, which for our American listeners, all all four or five of you, is about six by nine inches or about the size of a Reader's Digest. So it's it's smaller than what I would call a normal magazine, which I guess is small even in comparison to a UK magazine. But it's still plenty big enough for reading comfortably. Yeah, absolutely. Normal for UK listeners. That's smaller than what we'd call a normal magazine, which is larger than what John would call a normal magazine. Turning into a Monty Python (laughs) sketch here, Neil. (laughs) (laughs) Each issue is going to be about 60 pages. It's going to be full color. Uh, They're even making up binders to put them in. This is definitely something that we don't have, at least I've never seen in the U.S. People are obsessed with putting their magazines in binders in the U.K. I guess it makes sense. Did you ever put your magazines in binders, Neil? Binders tended to be a perk that you got for being a subscriber. You'd get sort of a little binder as a bonus. So as I didn't subscribe that often, I didn't get the binders. But I was always envious of them. I did look on them with with envious eyes because they looked so nice up in the bookshelf. And in the modern day now as a collector, I rarely see them come up on eBay. And I'm always looking for them to put my magazines in. Yeah, I like like binders. What, What do you think of this Amtix magazine, Neil? Do we have a winner here? I think so. Fusion, they've given a lot of love to the ZX Spectrum community with their crash annuals. And don't forget, these are official. They've they've legally licensed the names for these magazines. They're all above board. Um, And and also for the C64. And they get a lot of, or they have got a lot of the old um, staff members of these magazines involved in the past. So this is as legit as it gets in the modern day. 
So I think it's definitely time for the Amstrad to have their turn. And if they do it to the same quality if they are, as they have done for the other systems, then yeah, this I've got no reason to think this won't be as fantastic as all the other magazines that they've done. Yeah, yeah. And you can subscribe to Amptix through Patreon. This is a, a new way of subscribing to a magazine. I've, I've never heard of this before. Basically, uh, Patreon is, is set up to charge monthly, but since this is a quarterly uh, publication, they'll just pause the payments on months when they don't produce an issue. So you'll still only be charged when a new issue mm-hmm. comes out. Uh, so Patreon, it's a new way to subscribe. You can do that through Amptix. Yeah. Uh, interesting, isn't it, Neil? Really interesting. Uh, when you think about it, Patreon is ideal for magazine subscription style arrangements. I've just never considered it being used like that. And, and now you've mentioned it, I quite like it. Yeah, yeah. So uh, issues are available in PDF format for around two pounds. Uh, UK residents can get the print version delivered for a fiver, and non-UK residents like me can get on board for £6.50 an issue. Not too bad, not too bad. Uh, If you plan on subscribing, or if you've joined the 250-plus folks who already have, let us know in the comments. John, it's a great time to be a retro sci-fi fan at the moment because hot on the heels of the Wing Commander remake that we discussed in a recent show comes TFTC, or the TIE Fighter Total Conversion Project. So just to recap on the series, we had X-Wing in 1993, which began the LucasArts published series. Then we had TIE Fighter in 94, we had X-Wing versus TIE Fighter in 97, and X-Wing Alliance in 99. And these were all complemented by various collector's packs where they were all compiled together and things like that. It was a very popular series throughout the 90s. Now, I was big into the first few games in this series. Uh, It took my love of flight sims all the way up into space. It paired it perfectly with that familiar Star Wars universe, the music, the characters, the epic battle between good and evil. You knew where you stood with this game uh, and what was expected of you. I really did enjoy it. And it presented it in lush 3D graphics with lots of nice shading and effects. Even before the times of the 3D accelerator cards, we got we got to push our processors and enjoy a really nice 3D gaming experience. Uh, it truly was cutting edge at the time. Now, John, you revealed to us sometime back that you'd never actually played Quake. Tell me you've played these games. Please tell me. <sighs> oh, no. <laughs> Get ready to think even less of me, Neil, and listeners. <laughs> uh, the first Star Wars game... I played on PC uh, was a game called Rebel Assault. Um, have you played Rebel Assault, Neil? Yeah, this is basically streaming a movie while you move a sprite around. It's on the it's wildly there. regarded as being pure one hundred percent garbage. <laughs> um, I I liked it at the time. Um, I you know it was neat because it was photorealistic graphics on my PC. You know my my old you know Pentium one. Uh, you got to pilot the Millennium Falcon by using the mouse. Uh, I thought that was really cool, but I never, I never played any of the good ones. I never played X-wing. I never played Tie Fighter. I, I really should. It's time. This, this, this is the story that may actually get me to fire this up for the first time. Tell me more about what's going on right now, Neil. And if you'd like to apply for the role of co-presenter, yeah. of the job's open after this episode. Yourself- <laughs> <laughs> I don't think we should trash Rebel Assault that much because as much as it was an FMV game with not that much playability, it was a game of its time and it did make you feel cool playing it. No matter how little gameplay it was, it did make you feel really cool and special. So it is not that bad a game in that respect. 
But um, yeah, we did get Star Wars Squadrons more recently from EA. Uh, and that was a thoroughly modern AAA experience. I think you could even play it in VR. But for those of you who are pining after an experience that's truer to the original games, then there is now this new fan-created project. Now, it uses X-Wing Alliance as its base engine, which is that 1999 game. But that game has been maintained by fans over the last two decades. It's a bit like... It's a bit like the flights in Falcon 4 in that respect. People just keep on releasing updates for it. And it still looks like a modern game despite being that old because of all the attention that it receives. Um, so it still plays well on modern PCs thanks to all that. So to play this, you're going to need X-Wing Alliance from GOG or Steam. Then you install a bunch of patches and then you install the total conversion on top of that and you're good to go. That's pretty standard fare for fan-made projects and there are tutorials to help you out to get it up and running. And then when you get into the game, it does immediately feel familiar, I have to say. It has captured those old games really nicely. Visuals are great um, compared, of course, to the, the originals, which are 27 years mm -hmm. old after all. So we're not talking squadrons level of detail here, but it is mighty, mightily impressive what the community's come together to achieve with this. It's got nice balanced gameplay, just like the originals where um, I mentioned it's like a flight sim, John. So as you haven't played it, you're basically alternating between you get your mission at the start. You have the the um, briefing room at the start, like a flight sim. You navigate to all your waypoints. You want to complete the mission, of course. And then it kind of um, alternates between navigating to waypoints in a nice relaxing fashion with the music quietly playing along in the background and then intense battles in space and the music ramps up um it had something called the i lucas arts i muse music system so the music would be quite dynamic and it would change according to what was happening on the screen much like wing commander did in fact um and you'd be managing all of your ship systems at the same time so there was a lot going on a lot to keep you engaged in the game and um, I think they've done really well with this fan-made project. Uh, hopefully Duncan's been able to show some footage of it while we've been talking about it so you can get a feel for it. And um, well done to everyone who's managed to create this. Um, I'm going to put you on the spot now, John, and also the listeners. Tough question. Well, not for you because you haven't played it, but tough question <laughs> for the listeners maybe. Wing Commander or TIE Fighter, which universe do you want to play in the most? Well, you know, I, I, I've never played these games, but I have... Um... I have read a, a whole bunch about them, and uh, I think the Tie Fighter is the way to go, es especially the Tie Fighter game where you know you play as a member of the Empire. I love games and stories where they sort of flip the script and they they put you in the role of the bad guy to show you that the quote unquote bad guys aren't necessarily all as bad as they appear, and uh, and sometimes the the good guys are, are sort of jerks. You know, it's 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 that Cobra Kai sort of thing. You know what I mean? Um, so I, I'd love to see a game where you play as a member of the Empire, and even though you're technically the bad guy in the story, you know the, the rebels are just constantly causing problems. And from your perspective, they're just this this headache, and you're just trying to do your job. So uh, I, I, I would much rather play in the sort of already created world of Tie Fighter than sort of the I don't I don't want to call the Wing Commander story generic because I'm sure that it, you know especially as the series progressed, it became more and more involved. But being able to jump into a universe that i'm already familiar with that's that's the way i'd want to go yeah and that was the beauty of tie fighter was that you got to experience things from the dark yeah. side so that was a really nice element of the game 
Well, um, maybe on one of your many podcasts, John, Amigos or something like that, maybe you want to give Wing Commander a try sometime. Um, well, well, I have played Wing Commander. Or... I have not played X-Wing. Or... Oh, it's X-Wing. Yeah, it is one of the, one of the all-time uh, saddest aspects of being an Amiga fan is that the Amiga never got these games. This came out at about yeah. the time when the Amiga releases were starting to fade and, and lots of people were jumping ship for the PC. It was a good advert for doing exactly that, games like TIE Fighter. Anyway, if you'd like to check out this project, check out the show links, of course, where you'll find uh, not only links to the project, but also tutorials and some YouTube videos of it in action, uh, if Duncan hasn't already shown us them on the screen. Uh, and uh, perhaps you too want to whet your appetite and join the dark side. <laughs> Neil, as we all know, part of being a collector is the thrill of the hunt. Uh, going to charity shops, getting up way too early to visit car boot sales, or even the occasional rummage through the trash are all part and parcel of feeding the passion of being a collector of classic games. Uh, Neil, what is your most famous thrift store find? I get asked this quite a lot, and I have to say I've actually had more luck looking in the bins than in the there thrift stores themselves. <laughs> yeah, you know, um, yeah, um, anything... Yeah, anything at all that you'd really consider retro. I just don't have any luck in thrift stores or charity shops, as, as we call them over there. I still go into them to buy PS1 and 2 games, sometimes PSP and Xbox games. Uh, that's what's about at the moment. It's all games. It's, it's not really hardware. I find that these shops are too well curated these days. Like, you won't find a ZX Spectrum tape mixed in with music cassette tapes these days if indeed they even have music cassette tapes um i know as a format tapes are getting a bit more popular with the kids mm -hmm. so uh, i expect there's a few more of them but you don't find old video games mixed in with them you don't find electrical items very often because they can't be sold here without safety checks which most charity shops don't do and of course everything absolutely everything has a value as dictated by ebay which is where people turn to if they don't know what it's worth that's that's just how it works these days but um i have a friend uh, who shall remain anonymous we'll call him barry uh, who went to a shop with me not so long ago um well it was now it was just before the lockdown so going on 18 months or so ago and uh, the shop will also remain anonymous. It wasn't a charity shop. It was a retro game shop. And he picked out a game that he wanted to buy, which had no price sticker on it. So he asked the owner, who, of course, immediately, and he didn't even try to hide this. He pulls out his laptop. He goes onto eBay to see how much it's going for on eBay so he can set a price. But on this occasion, there were no listings for it. So he ummed and he ahed for a little bit. And because Barry was buying a few games, he said, I tell you what, I'll just throw it in for free. <laughs> wow. <laughs> And that game was called Battletech. And what appealed was that it was an Infocom published title. So Infocom being the publishers of great games, well, text adventures like Zork. And uh, Barry collected those. So that's all he knew. He hadn't seen this game before either. He just saw Infocom on it. So he wasn't trying to dupe the owner or anything like that, pull the wool over his eyes. He just saw Infocom and thought, I want that game. And the owner said, have it. So brilliant. He did. Now, um, when we looked on eBay, in fact, I looked on eBay just this morning before we started recording the show to check it. And there are two listed on eBay now. One is £108 and the other is £80 for this game. Now, that's not to say they're truly worth that. But if these listings existed when we went to that shop, we wouldn't have got it for any less than £70 at the very best because he would have taken that as law as to the value of the game. And the same applies to car boot sales and garage sales. Now, eBay made all of this stuff more accessible to people 
so we can get access to it without ever leaving the house the mailman will just turn up with it for us but it's almost killed most of the fun of finding hidden treasure and i say most of the fun because the story that i've just told you is also an example of actually finding that treasure and getting a bargain so it is still possible but it's a very rare occurrence and it's the reason why I go into these places with very, very low expectations to actually come out with anything. And it's also the reason why I watch and enjoy watching things like LGR's thrift episodes. Because when I see them in the US, it's like some kind of portal into another world where these bargains still exist. Well, listen, Neil. And I think you're telling me they do. I live in the US and LGR lives in some sort of parallel US universe because oh, <laughs> I okay. go to thrift stores all the time <laughs> and I never see even the stuff that he says is awful that he doesn't want is still tons better than the stuff that I see at thrift stores it's I need to where I think LGR lives somewhere in the Carolinas I need to head down that way because that I guess that's the uh, that's where the new gold rush is in terms of thrift stores but these days I do know that his I do know that his method for making those episodes episodes is actually spread over several yeah. months you know he takes clips over a long period and then compiles them down into one so it's not like he just goes to a shop one day and finds all of this that's true that's true that is worth keeping in mind uh i found uh these days that if you really want bargains you have to really check out like places like facebook marketplace or craigslist where people just have junk they don't know what it is and they want it gone (laughs) and and uh and aaron and i've been able to get uh, a couple good finds uh most recently aaron made a deal for something like a hundred dollars he ended up getting three or four max uh classic max uh in sgi workstation a bunch of amiga stuff uh and it was basically this guy he didn't want to sell it he didn't want to do anything but take a picture of it and put it on facebook marketplace and uh and so there are still bargains to be had but you have to deal with people one-on-one on a personal level sometimes you have to meet up with them in somewhat shady locations to, to do the deal so there is an element of risk involved but uh you know aaron he fears nothing um but uh in <laughs> terms of my best thrift uh when i was living in washington dc which has been almost 20 years ago now uh there were tons and tons of thrift shops around because i lived in a military community that was transient uh, i wasn't in the military but uh there was just there were lots of bases around it a lot of times families just donated the majority of their belongings when they were transferred to a new base rather than pay you know whatever it costs to move for for moving trucks and things like that so it was what you call a collector's paradise uh, i would walk into my usual haunts each week and come out there uh with a carload of classic consoles games computer stuff pretty much anything you can think of um i found a lot of great stuff over the years including a Flintstone surprise at Dinosaur's Peak at an outdoor flea market, which if, if you're not an NES guy, you're like, what's that? But it's it's actually one of the most rare NES games ever. It sells for tons of money. Look it up uh, and see what it's going for these days. But my all-time great... What was... Sorry, John. What was that oh, one called? Flintstones? Flintstone's surprise at Dinosaur Peak. I've not heard of that one, so I'll have to look that up. Yeah, yeah. There, it's... Uh, I believe that it was only available through rental channels. And so that's why that's oh, okay. why it's so rare. Um, but my all-time greatest find was a sealed copy of Maniac Mansion, Neil. Maniac Mansion. Wow. It boggles the mind how somebody could have bought Maniac Mansion and not opened it. You know, they left it sealed. And then on top of that, just tossed it out to a thrift store 15 years after it came out. But there it was. Uh, I snagged it. Uh, of course, I immediately listed it on eBay because uh, I needed the money. I, I had to feed my collection habit. I wasn't a PC game collector. I, I wanted the console stuff. And I was like, well, if I sell this, 
I can get more console stuff, and and I did. Uh, I figured I'd get about fifty bucks for it. Uh, I was shocked and amazed, Neil, when it sold for almost five hundred dollars. So uh, that's wow. that's by far my greatest thrifting find. Uh, now that I've gotten older, though, and I appreciate PC games more, I wish I'd held on to it. I'd love to still have that sealed copy of Maniac Mansion, but that's how it goes. Do you think that is the find of your lifetime, John? Do you think you're going to top that? Uh, yes, uh, I do think that that is yeah. the find of a lifetime, especially in the climate <laughs> that we live in now, where it's easier than ever to put stuff for sale online, you know, through various channels. Um, I went to a thrift store um, just last week, and um, I don't know if, and of course the big chain of thrift stores here in the United States is Goodwill. You'll see that on LGR's videos and things, yeah. but I don't know if our local Goodwill just ha doesn't have a policy for putting out any electronics, but I didn't even see, uh, I didn't see any monitors. I didn't see any old computers. I did see some old VC, uh, some old uh, DVD players, but apart from that, you know, Goodwill's site has a um you know a very extensive uh or the goodwill as a company they have a very extensive auction program which we're going to talk about and i don't know if everything just gets filtered if it's electronics it gets put in a bin and sent to you know a special place for processing but people you know when you donate something it just doesn't go out to the shelves anymore like it used to yeah well, I'm in an incredibly fortunate position, as you know, where people donate stuff to me. And in fact, you're on the receiving end of some very generous Absolutely, donations yes. over at Amigos. Um, so that is a, a very interesting sort of channel through which to find old games. Um, most people who donate stuff know exactly what they're donating. So they know if it's super rare and... I always say to them if they're going to send something in that's rare are you sure are you absolutely sure you want to send this in and and nine out of ten times they do and i'm very appreciative of it so we're in such a fortunate position and i've got one such example here can you guess what game i'm about to mention John? uh would it be ultima neil <laughs> <laughs> this game in uh, i opened this on friday as part of a box of games and it's uh ultima 4 quest of the avatar but um it's a european exclusive version distributed by us gold oh which is really interesting i've never never ever seen this before um i don't actually know its exact value but i'm assuming that it's probably pretty valuable yeah. because of its rarity i wonder how um, us gold ended up with the with the rights to distribute that because it's not as if ultima was some you know nothing property in europe yeah i don't know it's got the price tag it was originally 19 pounds 95 at boots the chemist when it was <laughs> sold and it's a commodore 64 and it's in this sort of hard plastic vhs style yeah. case um so that's a really nice one for the collection and um speaking of ultima uh i've mentioned this before um a long time ago i managed to collect pretty much all of the ultima games two through to, to nine uh, for under five pound or five to ten pound at most back in the late 90s when nobody cared about them and just like you i sold them all a few years later because i needed the money and i, I would kill to have them back i would absolutely love to have that collection but it's just so expensive mm -hmm. to do so right now um uh, and i say i'd kill to have them back i actually mean that you know <laughs> it would be like the arnie movie commando you know my mission would be to collect all of the ultima big box games and then the sequel which would have to have a higher body count because that's how arnie movies work <laughs> that would be me collecting the sierra games now that's that's a film i want to see neil <laughs> let me know when you start production on that <laughs> well 
getting back to our story, you know, thrift store finds are still possible, but they're becoming more and more rare as shops start to pick through their donations and list items on auction sites for sale. And that's what happened here. So this story is brought to us by subreddit user Pajaco6502. Uh, Air Raid, Neil. Air Raid, uh, an Atari 2600 game published by the mysterious outfit Minivision, uh, popped up on a Texas Goodwill auction site last week, and bidding took off like a rocket. So if you're not familiar with Air Raid, it's considered by many people to be the rarest VCS game of all time. Um, Game-wise, it's nothing special. It's a, it's a typical 2600 shoot-em-up. But it was manufactured with this crazy case. Um, the case looks like you know a normal VCS cart, but then it's got a T-shaped handle, like an Allen wrench or something, like a tool you'd use to, to screw in an Allen wrench, um, uh, at the top of the cartridge. And it's in the sky blue. It's immediately identifiable as being, wow, this is not a normal VCS game. Uh, another thing that's weird about it is that the label art has no text on it at all. There's no game title. There's no publisher information. It's just a picture of UFOs raining down destruction on a city. So according to the story from Tech Times in the show notes, uh, Goodwill employee Alex Juarez spotted the game and he knew it wasn't your normal ET or Space Invaders or whatever. And he turned it over to Goodwill's e-commerce team to host on their auction site. There you go. That's exactly how it works, isn't it? Thrift stores with e-commerce teams taking away the precious treasures. Yes, <laughs> yes you're exactly right. That's exactly what they're doing. Now, obviously, uh, thrift stores, they're, they're in business to maximize their... Well, let's, let's, let's back up. So uh, there are two kinds of thrift stores. There are thrift stores that exist as charity shops for people that, uh, you know, they want to come in and they want to get a bargain. And the thrift store exists because they want to give people a bargain. And there are other types of thrift stores that benefit uh, organizations like Oxfam and Goodwill. Their job is to make as much money from products as they can so they can give that money to charitable causes. So, And that's that's what Goodwill does. So, um, you know, they're in business to try and sell stuff for as much as they can so they can turn around and give that money to for, for programs for people in need. So, um, but... What do you think, Neil? Do you think that these stores are actually shooting themselves in the foot by hosting these auctions, which discourage the casual buyer from walking in and finding a bargain? Uh, you know, if this had been 20 years ago, the game would have just gotten thrown in the bin with the rest of the loose cartridges at the local Goodwill and sold for, you know, 3 or $5. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, as you mentioned there, I think if we step back from the emotion of our love of retro games... When you donate something to these places, whatever it is, games, clothes, whatever, you do so in the hope that it will make a difference to the cause that the stores support. And to make a difference, they have to make money. So the donor wants the item to sell for as much as possible. The shop wants it to sell for as much as possible. And the recipient of the goodwill needs needs as much money as possible to help with the cause. So I hold no ill feeling towards that whole process. I just think we need some kind of government-enforced laws <laughs> to cap the price of Ultima, yeah. you know, or Sierra and LucasArts games as well. That needs to be written in law and enforced. Law and enforcement, John. I think that's perfectly reasonable. The Video Game Price Control Act of 2021. Make it happen, government. There it is. <laughs> <laughs> well, at the conclusion of the auction, get this, Neil. The game sold. This is a piece of plastic with a circuit board. $10,590. <laughs> Send in the SWAT team. 
get them in there. <laughs> now, keep in mind, this is just That's loose huge. cart. No box, no manual. It's an incredible amount of money. But, of course, the real jackpot would be to find a copy of this game, Air Raid Complete. Uh, there have been two auctioned, as far as I'm aware, ever in the history of eBay. <laughs> the last one sold for an eye-watering $33,000. So uh, let that be a lesson to all of us collectors. Um, don't give up the hunt. There's still gold to be found out there, whether you're doing your thrifting in person or at the keyboard. Neil, it's 2021. It's summer. It's time to stop putting it off. It's time to recap your Amigas. <laughs> these, these boards are filled with lots of little ticking time bombs just waiting to explode and ruin your fun. But how do you go about getting what you need? I'll tell you. The easiest way to get set up for this project is to head over to RetroRewind.ca. The fine, friendly Canadians at Retro Rewind have full capacitor kits for every model of Amiga from the original all the way up through the 4000. Because these come packaged together, you can take the inconvenience of hunting around for individual caps out of the equation, not to mention the peace of mind knowing that you have just the right ones for the job and you haven't fat-figured a wrong part somewhere along the way. That's right, John. All these capacitor kits come in at under $20 and Retro Rewind proudly serves the international community, so no matter where you live, they can get you what you need without breaking the bank with shipping costs. But that's not all. This week in Retro listeners can save 10% off any order by using the promo code TWIR10. That's TWIR10 at checkout. Thank you to RetroRewind.ca for sponsoring This Week in Retro. So on to our community question of the week. And last week's question was, what computer made you? That's right, Neil. We, we got lots of great responses on, on Reddit. Uh, obviously, most of our listeners are computer users. Uh, CK Itchy wrote, uh, first thoughts went to the Commodore 64, but for me, it would have been the Amiga 500. Such fond memories of going to my friend Simon's house in the early 90s after school to play the latest games he'd managed to purchase and acquire from his various sources. Uh, he was from Britain and was is now living in Western Australia, or was now. I think I think that's quite similar to my own experience. He, he probably had the C64, but the 8-bit computer, because of my age, I was very young. It was just a case of switch it on, play the games, enjoy the games. I wasn't thinking much more critically until I had the 16-bit machine. It's like, okay, what can I do with this? What can I learn? Programming, um, art, things like that. So it was much more influential, although I said last week the Amstrad was the machine that made me. Um, it's, it's level pegging with the Amiga 500. Yeah, yeah, and he said it was just so interesting and sad to sit back and watch the Apple and the PC get color and then better sound and then sadly put the Amiga to bed. You could kind of see the competition creeping up, definitely. Uh yeah, the loss of the lead that the Amiga had will sting forevermore. Yeah, yeah no kidding. Everyone, everyone who saw that happen knows. Uh, Pajaco6502 says, It's got to be my Amiga 500. Whilst I had a BBC Micro and a Speccy, it was the Amiga that not only allowed me to play games, but also dabble with music creation and creating graphics in D-Paint. So, yeah, that's the the Amiga. Uh, you know, one, one of the best lines about the Amiga I've ever heard was that somebody said, you know, Nobody ever bought an NES and was accidentally tricked into becoming a programmer. Uh, with the with the computers, <laughs> especially the Amiga, it gave you so many opportunities to actually be a productive user and not just a gamer, whether you fell into it forwards or backwards, that uh, it's a, a, such a special machine. Yeah, I can only 
repeat your thoughts on that. You know where I stand on yeah. the Amiga. And finally, Reading Glasses Man says, without a doubt, it was the Commodore 16. It was a bundle featuring a children's artist I won't name. Can you tell who it is? Ooh. Oh, um, <laughs> good idea. <laughs> I remember the moment I realized what a four next loop did, and it transformed my life. From then on, I was Commodore all the way until my first PC. Yeah, Commodore 16, um, I had one friend who had one. We used to play Treasure Island and Kickstart on it. And um, it was a capable machine, but it was one of the few machines I could look at as an Amstrad owner and go, yay, my machine's better than that. <laughs> That's right. You could give it the old elbow drop off the top rope for sure. <laughs> one of the few <laughs> machines. But yeah, I enjoyed that. <laughs> yeah. Well, thank you to all of our subreddit users for contributing their answers. If you want to read them all, head over to the Community Question of the Week thread on our This Week in Retro subreddit. Uh, this week's Community Question of the Week is, what was your best charity shop, car boot, or dumpster diving find? I can't wait to read some oh, of these I'm next really week, I'm really interested in this. I'm going to get enthralled and very jealous, I think, at some of the answers. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, please post your responses in the subreddit, and we'll read the top three most upvoted responses on the air next week. This Week in Retro was presented by Neil from RMC and John Shawler. It was produced by me, Duncan Styles. The podcast version of the show is available through your favorite podcaster, including Apple Podcasts and Spotify. And the video version is available on the This Week in Retro YouTube channel. Join our community subreddit at r slash This Week in Retro to suggest and vote on stories we cover on the show. If you watch This Week in Retro on YouTube, please give us a like and subscribe to help us reach new viewers. If you'd like to support the show, please check out the links to our Patreon and Coffee pages in the show notes or in the YouTube description. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week for more up-to-date news for out-of-date tech.